Welcome to The Loins of History. My name is Jay, and I'm joined by my very handsome co-host, Colin. And this is a podcast that we try to connect current events to history. And we've been talking about U.S. and Chinese relations for 19 episodes now, so the last 19 weeks. Yeah, kind of kind of crazy to think about. This is definitely our longest series, I think, uh, so far. But yeah, last week we talked about the meeting between U.S. President Richard Nixon and Chinese Communist Party Chairman Mao Zedong. In 1972, we talked about kind of why that happened, how it happened, and the significance of it today. That was our last episode. And in this episode, we're going to finish out the Cultural Revolution because that that meeting between Nixon and Mao took place kind of more or less in the middle of it. There's still there's still about what Colin four more we four more years left the until Mao dies from 72 to 76. So we're going to we're going to talk about the rest of the cultural revolution and the rise of Deng Xiaoping. So Colin, what are our key takeaways this week? Yeah, so 19 episodes. It's funny. Uh when we first started uh researching this, we were like, yeah, we can do we can do this in 8 episodes. It's just 200 years. 19 <laughs> episodes on. We've got eight eight more to go at least. That's right. <laughs> at least. We'll see. So for the key takeaways this week, Number one, similar to the Great Leap Forward, the radical factions of the CCP, so we've talked about the Red Guards, the Gang of Four, we'll get into a little bit more, they began to look bad and eventually would fall from grace. And moderates like Zhao Wenlai and Deng Xiaoping were able to regain control. And that's going to be it's going to be a political tightrope for them, but we'll, we'll get into that in a second. And then the second key takeaway... Mao was able to play these moderates and these radicals against one another from about 1971 with the death of Lin Biao all the way to his death in order to prevent them from gaining too much control. He didn't want the radical factions and specifically his wife from gaining too much influence. And he also didn't want the moderates to gain too much power and then ultimately undo everything that he had done because he started to realize that uh, the end was near for him as well. And he had some health issues that he was dealing with. And so the third takeaway is with that fall, the specifics of it were for the gang of four, they started to persecute and launch campaigns against these moderates that were political missteps for them. They became a liability for Mao in the Chinese versus an asset in moving the cultural revolution forward. And once Mao was gone and out of the way, it really opened themselves up to be arrested and eventually tried because the moderates were able to take power. So kind of one and three go together, but it was really a series of of missteps with these campaigns that the Gang of Four launched. So First, I want to go back and I want to finish talking about Lin Biao. And we're going to go back to about 1968, right before Nixon and Kissinger's visit, because I want to paint a picture of the state of China at this point with the Red Guards being sent out to the countryside and a lot of these educated youth being sent out to the countryside. We talked about the Chinese stepped in and declared martial law. That was really for two reasons. One, they were afraid of the Russians or excuse me, the Soviets invading in nuclear war. And two, they needed to regain a semblance of control over society. The Red Guards had achieved the aims that Mao had for them, and he needed a way that he could enforce order. So in steps Lin Biao. And Lin Biao had been a military man since joining the CCP and fighting 
in the Chinese Civil War in the Japanese invasion. And at the time, he was the Minister of Defense. And at the Ninth Party Congress in 1969, was named Mao's successor. So during this era of 68 through about 70, 71, the country, how do I want to say it? Kind of for a frame of reference for our listeners, think like post 9-11, where the surge of patriotism kind of overtook countries and governments were highly militarized and they were passing a lot of laws and people really kind of forgot about day-to-day problems and were focused solely on this external threat. And that's kind of what Lin Biao was able to channel because there were projects where the Chinese would literally dig miles of tunnels and trenches and fortifications around cities, kind of abandoning this industry in a lot of ways. So their, their GDP definitely suffered and their industrial output suffered. And they kind of, even though the, the cultural revolution was still occurring, it was not as severe because the focus now became an existential one where they were, okay, we could, we could be wiped out by the Soviets. So Lin Biao, with this militarized society and martial law being declared, became very, very powerful and influential. As a matter of fact, people kind of looked to him almost as the leader of the CCP because Mao was now just, once again, kind of like after the Great Leap Forward, kind of sidelined as Lin Biao administered this now military state and prepared the defense of China versus the Soviets, which they really thought at any moment, the Soviets were just going to march over the border and overrun China or launch nuclear weapons. As a matter of fact, there was a an incident where I think it was 1970, where the Russians sent ambassadors to Beijing to meet with CCP and negotiate. And Mao and the rest, and Lin Biao and the rest of the China, the CCP, were so worried that it was a ploy to get them all in Beijing and they were going to be nuked. That only Zhao and Lai was there to greet the Russians and, excuse me, the Soviets. Sorry, I use those terms are basically interchangeable at this point. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Central he, Asian countries. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I know the Kazakh, Kazakhstan played a vital role in, in Soviet policy, but yeah. sorry. Anyway, so Zhao and Lai was the only one to greet them. All the other leaders, to include Lin and Mao, were scattered about the country in different, uh, basically, bunkers holed up in case a war broke out. So that's the state of China while Lin Biao is kind of on this rise. And he becomes a the de facto leader in a lot of ways. And Jay, you said it a couple of weeks ago that there is something about a totalitarian state where they have an innate fear of the military and having to have the military under their control. So seeing this military man, the minister of defense, who has already been proclaimed by the party as Mao's successor, rise incredibly fast in power and influence, scared Mao. And then in 1971, there was allegedly a coup attempt against Mao led by Lin Biao, and it failed. Obviously, he was um, he tried to flee the country with his family, flee China, and escape to the Soviet Union. Unfortunately for him and his family, he was killed in a plane crash where everyone died. Now, this is where there's some mystery, some conspiracy, a lot of scholars. I've seen it just doing some research where they kind of, some just say it was a, a freak occurrence, plane crashes happen, especially at this era. But others believe that Mao orchestrated the killing of Lin Biao and this entire coup was a setup and a ploy just to assassinate him. And Lin Biao was really just trying to escape because he read the writing on the wall. And they point to a letter that was found after Lin Biao's death to Mao Zedong that he wrote basically criticizing 
now in saying that they need to have more moderate policies. They needed to make peace with the Soviets. And he started listing all his grievances. That letter was found after Lin Biao's death. And again, scholars kind of debate the the authenticity of that letter. Yeah, how, con- in, how convenient. How convenient. <laughs> it's like Li Feng. We talked about they found this letter on this young soldier who died. So it's not in Colin's personal opinion. I think that this was just a ploy to get Lin Biao out of the way and killed because he had gained too much power and influence. He had served Mao's purpose in regaining control of the country, militarizing it effectively in case the defense against the Soviet Union was necessary and it was no longer necessary. So control was retaken. They were defended against the Soviet Union and he was too powerful and Mao needed him removed. So he used this as an excuse. I mean, we see it time and time throughout history. Dictators and uh, tyrants typically do that. They will assassinate, come up with ploys as a means to remove their political enemies. So in, in Colin's opinion, in my humble opinion, based on reading this, that's what I think happened. And I think there's a lot of uh, scholars that would back me up on that. Yeah. No, in Yeah. I think the general, at least Western English speaking consensus is that that was the case. There's even been some Chinese scholars that, uh, you know, in the last 20 some odd years that have come out and said the same thing. The, the only comment that I would like to make before you start rolling into the gang of four is just like this, the incident with Lin Biao and the, and the extreme paranoia that occurred is a good, is a good pulse check on just like the culture of the cultural revolution in general. Like so many people had died. Like it's, it's really hard for our to wrap our minds around the fact that there would be like literally hundreds of thousands of people that would vanish in the period of a week. Uh, you know, and, and these hundreds of thousands of people would be government officials. You know, China in its entire history has had just a massive admin- administrative bureaucracy that really doesn't have equal in in the Western world uh, or elsewhere. And they would just be gone. So there would just be this intense paranoia where if you were seen to be gaining too much power, it was very common for you to just like, you better watch your back. And that's exactly what happened with Lin Biao. So when we see here before Colin talks about the gang of four, you had to prove your innocence even before anyone started giving you guilty accusations. So yeah. Uh, Colin, was that a good segue for the Gang of Four? (laughs) That actually is a very good segue because before I talk about the Gang of Four, I want to paint the picture from Mao and why the Gang of Four was brought to power. So Mao, to his core, was a lot of things. He was politically, you know, he was a a political genius, to be completely honest. I mean, he outmaneuvered a lot of his enemies. He regained power. He held power for decades. Um, and he was a true Marxist-Leninist to his core, and he believed it. He was an ideologue. He believed in him, you know, his own cult of personality. But he, we have to understand something about him. He has been part of the revolution and revolutionary movements since he was very, very young. If you remember, he was part of the initial revolutions in 1911 with Sun Yat-sen. Like he was part of that as a very young man. And then he was a teacher, a young teacher, and then got involved with initially the KMT and then broke off with the CCP. So his entire life has been revolution, really. 
And I think that's important to realize because he understood, for him at least, to maintain power and to enforce these Marxist-Leninist ideas. It was not about policies, so to speak, like a good economic policy, because otherwise he would have left Liao Shaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, and even uh, Lin Biao to a lesser extent but Deng Xiaoping as well, he would have left them in power and let them run the country because when they were in charge, remember this from the socialist education movement, the country started to recover faster. However, he started losing his revolutionary control. His ideological control was slipping and that was his biggest threat. So he understood the importance of ideology. And even if his policies were not good, his ideology would be enforced at all times. And that was what was most important to him. That's why he was willing to have millions of people die in the Great Leap Forward, because it furthered the Marxist-Leninist ideologies. And he understood that the socialist education movement under Liao Shaoqi was not as effective as he wanted it to be, because at its core, it it didn't redefine the culture. So the Gang of Four really put the culture in culture revolution. And you know, you say, Colin, duh, that's what it means. It means the culture revolution. I understand that. What I mean by that is the Gang of Four was led by his fourth wife, who was an actress. <clears throat> so Yang Qing was his Mao's fourth wife. She was an actress. And it's kind of interesting about her life because she was even at one point accused of being like an agent of Chiang Kai-shek and uh, like a, a capitalist rotor kind of at first. And then somehow because she was she was pretty. She became Mao's fourth wife. We've already talked about Mao's proclivities and his womanizing tendencies. So she became his fourth wife. But as an actress, she understood the importance of the arts and culture and how it influences people. So she was incredibly valuable to Mao during the Cultural Revolution. We've already talked about some of the criticisms of art and opera that, that Mao had before the Cultural Revolution. So he really relied on this gang of four to change the way that they presented arts and culture. So, Jiang Qing was responsible for changing even something like a play. It was no longer these, you know, fantastic stories about Chinese history. It was all about, it was very black and white. It was the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie was always wrong. The, the, the proletariat was always right. And they it was very simple, it was very straightforward, and it always had a political message and it was constantly reinforced. <clears throat> and then the other three members, so Yao Wenyan, Huang Gan, Huang Fen, and Zhang Chung Chao were all responsible for these emulation campaigns that we talked about with Li Fang, redefining these arts, re restructuring the education system. So the education system no longer became about math and science. Mind you, remember, Mao was a teacher before. It became about political thought, the cult of personality. How can we have the arts and the culture redefined to enforce this cult of personality around Mao and Marxist-Leninist and Maoist thought? So that was their main responsibility from 68 or from 66 to 76. They became very, very powerful very quickly, specifically Jiang Qing, because she had the ear of Mao. One of the other tasks that the Gang of Four was really responsible for, we've already talked about their role in influencing the general populace, but was also to keep the CCP in line and keep them on the left side of the Communist Party, politically left, I guess I should say, meaning that 
they would oftentimes launch campaigns against anyone that they felt were dissidents. So as we'll see, they launched a campaign after Lin Biao died against Lin Biao. They launched one against Zhao Enlai. They launched them against Deng Xiaoping as well. And what these were designed to do is turn the populace against these leaders and through this popular man, no, mandate of the masses where people would want them removed from power and they would succumb to this political pressure that was really all launched from this gang of four. Think about right now with, I guess, a modern equivalent of what they are is basically like the media. They control the media and you hear like legacy media, big tech. They're influencing all this. They control all the information. That was the gang of four. They controlled the newspapers. They controlled the education system. They controlled really information and how it was disseminated to the populace. And they would make sure that it was always in line with what Mao wanted and sometimes even a little further left than Mao. That was their main role. And it worked pretty effectively. They And then they would also utilize someone by the name of Kang Shang, who I talked about. And Kang Shang was kind of the political muscle of the Gang of Four. He wasn't technically part of the Gang of Four, but he worked closely with them. And he had studied under the uh, the NKVD and, and so in the Soviet Union. So he was like deeply involved in espionage, information, propaganda. And he was oftentimes his interrogation methods involved torture. So he was kind of the muscle and the enforcer. And he would come up with target lists that he wanted the Gang of Four to go after. So He's the one that came after Liao Shaoqi, even Lin Biao, and several others. And his name and Kang. So Kang Shang was kind of the the muscle of the Gang of Four. So they would use him in order to keep people in line. So yeah, he was kind of the political. Mu- he was the muscle as well. He'd come in behind him and say, "This person is a dissident. They're a rightist. They're a capitalist rotor." The Gang of Four would then launch this campaign, this anti so and so campaign, and they would basically decry this individual publicly as a capitalist rotor. The populace would get behind the Gang of Four and what they were saying, and then Kang Shang would come after them and arrest them, publicly try them, interrogate them, torture them. Oftentimes, members of the CCP were killed or, as you said earlier, Jay, disappeared. So it was a really difficult time for members of the CCP. I do also want to say with the fall of the Gang of Four, so the Gang of Four operated basically with Mao's blessing for seven, eight years, maybe until like 19, until like 1974-ish. And we'll see kind of how that, it's kind of a fuzzy date, but you can see where things started to change. So within the 70s, Mao was playing Deng Xiaoping and Zhao Enlai against the Gang of Four. And his biggest concern was that the Gang of Four was going to become too powerful in and of themselves. But he also didn't want, as I mentioned earlier, Zhao Enlai or Deng Xiaoping to outlive him and then regain control because he saw that they were very popular. So the Gang of Four tried their best to tear down Zhao Enlai and Deng Xiaoping. So Deng Xiaoping was actually already kind of purged from the party. And he even spent like four years out in a factory working just as like this ordinary laborer. And then he was kind of rehabilitated after the death of Lin Biao because I think even Mao was like, all right, I need somebody that knows what they're doing to take over. So he rehabilitated him and brought him back into the party in a lesser role at the time. Yeah, it was... So Dang had been like straight up kicked out of the party, whereas Zhou Enlai had not. Zhou Enlai was the one moderate that consistently held his post until his death. And so when he died, people were like, oh, shoot. 
Because they knew the moderates were the ones who were actually like running the country. And Mao knew that when the radicals had their way, things went off the rails. However, the narrative that the radicals, i.e. the Gang of Four, peddled was politically convenient for Mao because Mao was himself an ideologue. So when when Zhou Enlai died, Deng was he was like, okay, we actually need somebody to run the country. Deng, come back. Which it's just it's just funny to me that how like this this contradiction of hey, pure socialism actually wrecks the country. We we know that the purists aren't the right people for the country. Like to me, it's the obvious. Like you should probably question your ideology ideology them but no no it's too late it's too late to do that it, it's kind of sad i mean this is why i said in one of the <laughs> earlier episodes i think when we were talking about the great leap forward that i think mao to his core was a bad person i mean he was an evil guy because he was willing to he was such an ideologue and he believed in his ideology and as we're going to see his legacy that he would willingly sacrifice millions of people because he and he didn't care um, and he would yeah. he would absolutely try the great leap forward again and he, he kind of did again in the 70s, not quite as um, intensive, but I mean, there were still projects where he launched basically building these giant factories in the middle of nowhere and they would just rush people like that. He understood that manpower was like China's greatest asset. They just had tons of mm. workers. So he would just flood these like random areas in the desert or in uninhabited areas and be like, we're going to build a factory and everything you need to support it. We don't care if it doesn't make money. We need the factory. And it was like a huge economic disaster in the seventies for them as well, because even though they would build this factory, it was like, okay, they built a factory. Now they have nothing to make and nobody to sell to and no market. So it was just kind of this very poor policy that they had implemented that didn't work. And it was when the moderates weren't in control. And to your point about Zhou and and Lai, I think, this is, again, my opinion, I think he was protected from some of the political intrigue that was occurring during the Cultural Revolution because he was primarily focused on foreign relations as the premier. Mm -hmm, So he spent a lot of time in like the Soviet Union. He was the one that orchestrated, I mean, the whole Kissinger and Nixon visits. Like he was, it's going to come back to bite him later. Uh, But that's what he, he was in charge of. So it kind of protected him in a way. And he was so senior and he had such a, like politically, he was kind of a quote moderate, at least for a communist but even his persona and like the way he carried himself was extremely calming. He had like this calm demeanor. He was described as like this calm demeanor. He was kind of a handsome guy, like nothing really riled him. Like he was just this mm-hmm. calming presence. And so like people just kind of looked to him and were like, I really like that guy, you know? So he kind of insulated him a little bit and protected him. But so with, you know, Dang is sent to this factory. He works there for four years. He gets brought back. Zhao and Lai was still running things, but was still involved as well. But Mao recognized, yes, that the Gang of Four on its own could not run the country. They'll run it right into the ground, even worse, and that in he'll die and his legacy will be this disaster. He didn't want that, but he also didn't want Dang and Zhao to outlive him and wreck everything of his legacy. So he needed to keep them kind of at war with each other. So the Gang of Four, like I mentioned, they would launch these campaigns against different individuals. So they would they launched it against Lin Biao and even Confucius, who 
they'd launched after their death, you know, obviously they've been, Confucius has long been dead. Lin Biao died and, but they accused them and they had this anti-Lin campaign, which was their first political misstep. Because Lin Biao was actually kind of popular. The people recognized him as this sort of leader against the Soviets. He's this military man and he's got a long history of being, of fighting for the Chinese. So he was, people started questioning the Cultural Revolution if Mao could turn so quickly on one of his greatest allies. If you remember, Lin was one of the first ones that introduced Maoist thought to the military, the little red book he distributed and it infiltrated into the education system. So like Lin Biao was his number two guy and Mao quickly turned on him. So people started to question the motives of the gang of four here. And then it got even worse with Zhao and Lai. So there was an anti-Zhao campaign that was launched and People hated it. And then Zhao Enlai dies. He had bladder cancer. And this is kind of a testament to like he was actually a very good political figure. And I think in a different time of China, he would have been looked on differently. But he he had bladder cancer and the state would not authorize him like the necessary treatments. So like he was losing blood. He had to get blood transfusions every day just to stay alive. Like he lived in constant pain, but for like four years, he continued to work and like manage this country and keep it going up until he died in 19 early 1976 and when he died people were shocked and very upset they wanted to mourn and at this point mal had um what we call like lou gehrig's disease or als one of he had that so he was like Mentally, he was still there, but physically, he was like withering away. He couldn't walk. He could barely talk. He couldn't really couldn't even feed himself. So he was like on the verge of death, and he recognized that he was about to die. And he did not want Zhao to upstage him, even in his death. So, like, nobody was allowed to mourn Zhao and lie when he died. So, like, there was even like a funeral procession was not publicized. There was just a quick announcement that, oh, he died. No need to mourn. And then they denounced him as a capitalist rotor. And that was finally kind of like these, these missteps that the gang of four had. Well, this is kind of the last one. So that, you know, throughout the seventies, they were kind of, you know, anti-Lin, anti-Dang, now anti-Zhao. He's a capitalist rotor. We don't need to mourn him. It kicked off riots across the country because people wanted to mourn Zhao. And there, it culminated with the Tiananmen Square inc- Tiananmen incident. Not Tiananmen Square that we all know with the tanks in the picture, but the Tiananmen incident. Weird. It had a lot of stuff happens in Tiananmen Square, but it's the Tiananmen incident, which was a riot, and tens of thousands of police and military militia were brought in to quell the the kind of mini rebellion. And the gang of four kind of doubled down on their strategy and said, well, it was the capitalist rotors, those the subversives that they're the ones that were responsible for the riot and all this. Wildly unpopular. So Mao had brought in what who he was going to call his sister Hua 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 Gaofeng, who was also kind of a political moderate, but he was somebody that he thought Mao thought he could control in his final final days and would not rewrite his legacy. But Deng Xiaoping continued throughout the seventies, despite being continuously persecuted by the Gang of Four, despite. Uh, Mao always trying to move him around and take away power. He continued to work his way through the CCP and regain his power and influence. And when Mao died in 1970, late at the end of 1976 and Hua Gaofeng takes over, 
um, Deng was not removed from his position. And as a matter of fact, he was able to regain control and become the chairman of the CCP in 1978. And once Mao died, kind of stepping back just a minute, with the Gang of Four, they no longer had their protection. And all of these political missteps, this overreaching, this doubling down, uh, cost them because they were put on trial. They had their own purge. They were purged from the party, uh, kind of like Ro- Rochambeau, not not Rochambeau, Robespierre in the French Revolution. It fin- the guillotine finally came for them. And in 1976, they were purged. And then Deng Xiaoping, kind of in a twist of irony, uh, put them all in jail. And uh, Zhang, Qing, Zhang Qing was sentenced to death, actually. So kind of came full circle for him. Yeah, no, once uh once once Mao passed, it was kind of funny. It was like Dang had been quietly like not waiting in the shadows, but he like a good China man had, was playing the long game. And, whereas the Gang of Four was doing this aggressive like, you know, trying to kill him off, kill him off, kill him off, kill him off, didn't work and then it was just it was game over at that point. I think looking back on it, you kind of see that both Zhao and Dang recognized that Mao was going to die very soon. And I say very soon, like a couple years. So like four years. So in 1972, you look at it and you think, okay, four years or a couple years, Mao is going to be dead. They already knew his health was, was declining. He was an old man at this point. They really just had to survive long enough. And even though Zhao and Lai didn't, he lived long enough to make sure that his legacy was able to be rehabbed afterward. And that somebody could replace Mao um, and right the wrongs of the Cultural Revolution. And that was Deng Xiaoping. And it's kind of important to note that the Gang of Four saw this as they had to act quickly because they, they also knew that Mao died, was going to die very soon. And they had to remove everyone who could be a threat as soon as he's gone. So it's kind of like a... <sighs> it's weird to think, but in Mao's final years, he was kind of... He was still very powerful, but... Everyone was planning for him to die and what was going to happen as soon as he died because it was going to be extremely chaotic. The moment he died, the Gang of Four was going to be exposed and they had to make sure that they were in a position that they could survive. Fortunately, it didn't work out for him. Well, fortunately, I should say it worked out, didn't work out for him. And, you know, it's kind of interesting looking at the Gang of Four, like during the 70s, uh, Zhang Qing, she... I already said that she had some questionable loyalties kind of at the, during the Chinese civil war. She also was like a paranoid schizophrenic and a hypochondriac. So she was taking these medicines and medications for all of these illnesses, some real, some imagined. And she thought that her doctors and all of this medical staff were trying to kill her. She uh, started at that point, trying to equate herself to the only empress to ever rule China. And she made these giant robes of like royal red. And so she kind of built her own cult of personality around her. And I say paranoid schizophrenic because like delusions of grandeur, paranoia, those are all, you know, I'm not a doctor at all or a psychologist. That's, it's like psych 101. You kind of look at it and you see like, that's probably what she had. But I think that contributed to her irrational decision makings as the gang of four to go after some of these people in rather than kind of recognize that we need to play the long game here and understand where we're at as soon as Mao dies. I don't know, just my opinion, just my two cents throwing it out there. Kind of an interesting thing. So that's that's how the Cultural Revolution ended. It was very much Mao just died, and then the Gang of Four was arrested. 
it's important that I think we study the cultural revolution. And it's part of the reason that Dang would look back and try and right some of these wrongs because what Mao and the Gang of Four did during the cultural revolution was completely sever ties with the past. What I mean by that, China has had a long history, thousands of years, and one of the main goals of the Cultural Revolution, and really much of Mao's reign as chairman of the CCP, even before the the Cultural Revolution, was to modernize China in a Marxist-Leninist model, get rid of the old ways, destroy, to basically destroy the past so you can look to the future. And I think that's kind of a scary thought in the way they went about it because you had young students who destroyed works of art, who destroyed cultural traditions that had a lot of value within that society and held the society together. And they did it indiscriminately. And what it ended up doing was severing this, this continuous thousands of years of history, these people from that history. Today, China has had to rebuild a lot of those monuments. It's not really the original. I mean, the Forbidden City is, most of it was just rebuilt after it was destroyed. All of these, you know, the Great Wall, much of that's been rebuilt. All of these things through art, manuscripts, they had to kind of, after Deng Xiaoping came back to power, they had to look back to it and kind of recreate it. But they severed this tie to the past. So they became kind of like this rudderless ship where they could be, guided any which way by the Gang of Four and their new cultural norms that they were implementing or trying to implement via education, the arts, things like that. So as Americans, as listeners, it's important to understand and learn from history so you can kind of use it as a guide and recognize where problems are, see it as something that can unify you as a people. And that was something Mao wanted to destroy so he could remake people. And ultimately, when he tried to do that, He committed atrocities indiscriminately. Millions of people died during the Great Leap Forward. Hundreds of thousands were killed during the Cultural Revolution. Millions more were displaced, had their lives upended and destroyed, all for one man's ideology. So I think it's important to recognize that when people start talking about destroying all of the past and just only solely focusing on the future... An alarm bell should be kind of going off saying like, hey, that's kind of what most evil totalitarian regimes have always tried to do was completely sever a group of people from their past. You know, just my two cents. And I think even Deng Xiaoping recognized that because after he came to power and the Gang of Four was sentenced to uh, sentenced to jail and, and Zhang Xing was sentenced to death. They, as a CCP, looked back and actually exonerated Liao Shaoqi. And some of these others who were purged from the party, and they even made started making apologies and understanding how wrong the Cultural Revolution was and what it did to the Chinese people. You know, that was one of the biggest things that they could have done was really just going back and saying Liao Shaoqi is exonerated. You know, and all these other members of the CCP that had been purged, apologizing, saying it was recognizing it was wrong. So one thing, one thing that happened in this in like Deng's, you know, initial like repudiation of the Cultural Revolution. So just wanted to make one comment here and that was Hua was it Guo Fang? Yeah. Mao's like stated successor. There was like a two year period where he was in charge and Deng wasn't after mm-hmm. after Mao's death. He had come up with a statement called the two whatevers. So mm. 
for for a lot of our sinophiles out there, uh, you'll know that Chinese politics they like to come up with these phrases called like the two whatevers or the the th- the three reforms and five points. Like you know they na- they name these things anyway. Uh, Huo Guo, Guofeng made a statement that became known as the two whatevers, and these two whatevers, excuse me, was we will resolutely uphold. Whatever policy decisions Chairman Mao made, and unswervingly follow whatever instructions Chairman Mao gave. So those are the two whatevers. Whatever policy, whatever instruction, that's what we're going to do, no matter what. And it was very much like, I mean, frankly, Huo Guofeng being a beta and just saying like, I can't make any independent decisions myself, so we're just going to do whatever Chairman Mao said, even Which though Which is he's why dead. he was selected. Precisely. Uh, well, Deng Xiaoping was like, nah, man, in the, in the moderates, they very skillfully used another phrase that was well-known historically in Chinese culture called, and this phrase is, seek truth from facts. And this became one of the main slogans of Deng Xiaoping's um, uh, you know, push for reform and opening up. Uh, and and I think it's particularly relevant for us today, like not to go off on a tangent on you know the recent news about the orange the origins of covid and how like you know there's been multiple federal government intelligence agencies most recently the department of energy that said like yeah it most likely came from a lab in in china and there was a period of time in which you know you you would have been censored silenced for for saying that very thing browbeaten for being a conspiracy theorist etc and to me it's it's particularly relevant for our own culture like again not to take political cheap shots here on a history podcast but the point being is that like one of the, one of the things that made dang such a good leader i'm not saying perfect he was still a commie <laughs> but like it's this phrase of like the excesses of the cultural revolution and Mao's cult of personality are like, no, folks, we got to apply some independent thought here, and we have to seek truth from facts. To me, the the seek truth from facts is is a good like broad generalization to think about what Deng was trying to do. Uh, another another one was he was big on a on a phrase that went as liberation of thought. And it's like, it sometimes feels like now we feel like we have the thought police, like, you know, we call it cancel culture, but it's like, no, if you don't have the approved belief, you are shamed. You get to wear the dunce cap, which literally comes from the cultural revolution in in Chinese culture. It's like you will get named and shamed and that kind of thing. And I think that's why one of the things that makes the United States and Western culture great is our commitment to freedom of speech. Because you're not always right. And and if anybody wants to disagree with me on the podcast, you're free to do so. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because it is true. Like looking back over the past three years, I subtly threw in like legacy media and big tech or whatever, kind of comparing it to the gang of four. But it is true. If you if you were to bring up the lab leak theory in, say, July of 2020, you were scorned. You were publicly scorned. Like if you were any sort of influential person. And, you know, there were some like B, B-list movie actors who would do it. Like they would put you on like Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, those guys would put you on and then they would just berate you. And like the whole intention was basically to browbeat you, like have a comedian go out there and make fun of you in order to get you to publicly apologize or have people um, kind of 
is have people go and do their job for you, basically censor you, create such a public outcry and angst and turn people against it, make it so outlandish that people don't want to upset the norms and say, hey, maybe there is something to this. Maybe we should look into it. What's the problem with an investigation? And it's like, no, these comedians and everybody's telling me that it's complete conspiracy theory and I'm losing my mind and I can't do that. And, you know, we got to save just one life and maybe we will, you know, so that's, that's the modern equivalent to what the gang of four was doing. Like they were, they were the ones influencing what we would call like big tech, legacy media, night talk show hosts, things like that. Even academics. I mean, academics in China were, you know, the the education system is one of the first places that cultural, it was the first place the cultural revolution began. It was one of their key areas of of focus was influencing people through academia. And, you know, that's what's happened now. Yeah. Which when this is going to be somewhat of a tangent, but it's, it is very relative to China here. We're all about tangents Um, here. (laughs) So like, let's, let's, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go off on a on a COVID thing because what I'm about to say could very, probably very easily be interpreted as a conspiracy theory. But um, Colin, have you seen the the video montage of all the local uh, news station anchors saying the exact same thing about misinformation? Like, and it's like this very eerie and creepy, like word for word. They're saying the exact same thing. I mean, we're talking about dozens and dozens of different local news anchors. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know the montage you're talking Yes. Yeah. So I only bring up that montage to say, like, it's not a conspiracy theory. Like, it's just objective reality that the news sometimes, I'm not even trying to say all the time, sometimes receives talking points. <laughs> Who those talking points come from? I so I'll, I'll tell you, folks. What is a conspiracy theory? The fact the any any kind of theory that believes like the world is ruled by a small group of individuals or or anything like that. That's a conspiracy theory. That's not true. Uh, but like it's a known thing that news stations, media outlets from CNN to Fox News to your local ABC, CBS, whatever NBC news station. They sometimes get to determine what they say and sometimes they don't like it's and it depends like sometimes it's advertisers, sometimes it's funded, sometimes, you know, there'll be certain companies or lobby groups will no joke pay news organizations to say, hey, can you like give a story about my nonprofit that I'm trying to do? Like sometimes it's innocent and sometimes it's not. What I'm trying to get at here is. Like there was a very united effort to condemn the lab leak theory and say that it came from a bat. And the only question that I would like to raise here is like, why? Why? Just from an from an American Western standpoint, who cares? Like, why did it seem like the entire political left felt the need to run to the defense of China? Like that in and of itself to me is extremely telling when like why couldn't why couldn't the political left here in this country and, and I'm including like moderates here, why why couldn't we all have been like, yeah, it probably came from a lab. Like it was probably an accident. Like why why does this have to be a conspiracy theory? And the and the only the only rational explanation that I, Jay, can think of is for no other reason 
then it was in the political interests of China to ensure that narrative didn't go out because it made them look bad. Therefore, that I, I think the American people, me as a citizen, I, I question, I want to question certain media outlets. Like I want to know where their money's coming from because it's influencing how, uh, like I feel like as a citizen, we have a right to know like if we we have laws in this country where you're required to publicize campaign funding, right? Uh, like you're required, yeah. Like you're required to report if you're a candidate who funds you and what organizations you receive your money from. I believe a similar law should be passed for news outlets. Like they need to, if if a specific story was funded or even indirectly influenced in a certain way, they need to throw that disclaimer out front or somehow like, you know, in the same way that political campaign ads uh, have to put out there, like, you know, my name is, you know, Donald J. Trump and I support this message or my name is Joe Biden and I support this message. Like that's a legal thing to, because that ad wasn't, wasn't run by the Trump campaign or the Biden campaign. It was actually run by a third party and they have to like endure anyway, like, there needs to be these like disclaimers. Like if you received money from a company uh, or from a, from a person to do a story that needs to be reported somehow, some way, because I'm willing to bet there were, there were CCP lobbyists backed businesses, et cetera, that were, that were definitely trying to ensure that narrative didn't get out. That's my, that's my theory on the matter. <laughs> we may never know. Because we waited so long to, we were trying to stamp it out so much so that now what, three years have passed since, well, yeah, over three years since the lab leak occurred. We may never know because, and so it's all going to be conjecture at this point. And, and, and I do think balance is important here. Like I really don't, I don't want like the same. So this, the specific instance that I'm talking about here would probably be damaging to certain left-wing news outlets, but like. Fox News is in the same boat. Like everybody knows about the Koch brothers. Whether you agree with them or not, like it's like I want to know if a specific story was was funded on uh Fox News from certain people. Like there's the George Soros's of the world that fi- primarily fund like hyper left-wing type stuff, and then there's the Koch brothers and and other organizations that do it on the right. Like I think the American people deserve to know in all circumstances this isn't this isn't me trying to like get at the left rather this is me trying to say like they're in the same way of the cultural revolution like we didn't i don't don't know if we mentioned this for the gang of four but the positions in government that the gang of four held was primarily the propaganda apparatus it wasn't like the like the ministry of finance it was it was the media that they controlled so to speak so like in the same way that when the media is controlled by a bunch of ideologues, you and you you get the thought police. You and the thought police can be right or left. By the way, you know Nazi Germany had a, had a thought police, right? Just like communist China had one. So, uh, in order to prevent that kind of thing from happening, a, a transparency about who's behind the message, who's supporting it, either financially. or well, primarily financially, or just pushing it in general. We need, we should know who who's doing that. 
Jay, I think that just kind of reinforces the reason why people also need to be, you know, on top of a transparency, they also need to have a fundamental understanding of historical events because mm, bingo. If you don't, if you look at the, and you know, I think as you and I have started kind of reading about this and studying and, and doing some of this research, you really do see parallels between a cultural revolution and it looks different. Like as Mark Twain yeah. said, it doesn't repeat, it rhymes. You see a lot of similarities. You see ideologues infiltrate places they really don't need to be and disastrous decisions are made in the name of ideology, vice policy or something like, you know, along those lines. And then you see millions of people suffer the consequences because they really couldn't reference. And that's kind of what I was saying about the dangers within the cultural revolution where they severed the ties from the past. People weren't able to look back at any sort of common connection they had. They weren't able to to draw upon this common tradition or understanding. And if they sever the past for us, it's like we won't even understand where all this came from. It's just going to be blocked out and there's going to be no transparency. So it's important to study history so you can recognize trends in the future and see like, hmm, okay, these people are hyper ideologues and they've gained influence and they're funded by X, Y, and Z. So maybe, just maybe, their intentions are not all that good. Maybe there is an ulterior motive that's not being not being publicized here or not being, you know, people aren't being upfront about so we need to avoid that. So anyway, that's a great, no, that's, that's a good. great way to, that's a great way to close this cultural revolution out as we transition now more into, you know, I guess at this point, the close to the 1980s, and we're going to start to see within the US and China, conf, well, trade policies begin to change, policies on Taiwan are going to shift, and that's going to have dramatic mm-hmm. consequences for the internet, for not just the US and China, but the international community as a whole, and how we handle uh, you know, foreign policy within the Pacific Rim. Yeah, no, that was good, Colin. Thank you very much for for walking us through that that episode of the Cultural Revolution. I personally, I have been fascinated and learned a ton about the Cultural Revolution because you hear about it. When I was, I remember being an undergrad, and I want to say we spent. I took like a Cold War class. I think we spent one class on both the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. So it was like, that is, there's just no way to do either of those periods justice. Uh, so yeah, if you guys want to do any any further reading, we recommend Frank Decoder's book. He has a, a trilogy on the CCP, but one book in particular on, on the Cultural Revolution. That's a that's a good one, and he and he's a Hoover Institution scholar. I will always give shout outs to the Hoover Institution. They're probably my favorite favorite think tank. And anyway, so yeah, Colin, thank you, thank you for that um, uh, interesting history of the Cultural Revolution. Um, uh, I can already hear it now. Speaking of which, if you want to call us conspiracy theorists, we're on social media. <laughs> no. It's almost like racism. You have to say, like, I'm not a racist. Like, I swear, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> um, I'm not wearing my tinfoil. We're not, Jay and I are not wearing tinfoil hats when we record episodes. Yeah, I promise. But no, we do appreciate the feedback. Like, like, uh, like we've said in other episodes, I really enjoyed our series on the the history of American I- political ideology and. You know, where we talked about, we had a whole episode on freedom of speech. So if you want to, if you think you're crazy, if we're, if you think we're crazy, you can listen to our freedom of speech episode. And with that, we do appreciate f- feedback. Hopefully it's constructive. 
as we said in that episode, he, hate speech isn't protected speech. So if you want to hate, feel free. You are free to do so. <laughs> However, we'll probably just ignore you. <laughs> but if you have constructive criticism, we we are painfully aware of our shortcomings and would love suggestions on how to fix that. So uh, yeah, constructive criticism. But if you really like the episode and think we're doing a great job, five-star reviews are always appreciated. We uh, will give you a shout out here on the episode if you give us a five star review. You have to, you actually have to like type out a review. None of the, none of the podcast platforms that we publish on tell us if you just click the five stars and walk away. It doesn't tell us who you are. You have to actually like type out a review. I think it was Jake thirty eight did our last one. He was very smart. He he was listening. Jake thirty eight. This is a second episode. You're a smart, dude. Three words. Three words, entertaining, informative, and excellent, I think, were his three words. And it's like, we will give you a shout out, man. So, uh, yeah, so if you if you like it, you can give us a shout out. Uh, our social media is, our social media, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all, all some variation of the loins of history. My my Twitter handle is History. Uh, Collins is, is at insert name here. Very clever. So anyway... Thanks for joining us this week on the Loins of History, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye.